Hello and welcome to Minter Dialogue, episode number 404. My name is Minter Dial and I'm your host for this podcast. This week's interview is with Trina White. Trina's the principal of Page Two, a new kind of publishing house for non-fiction books. Based in Vancouver, BC, up in Canada, Trina was a finalist for the RBC Women Entrepreneurs Award and co-founded Page Two in 2013. Page Two has gone from strength to strength. In this conversation with Trina, we discuss her entrepreneurial journey, the lessons learned, trends and shifts in the book publishing industry, insights into what it takes to make a successful book, and much more. You'll find all the show notes on minterdial.com. Please do consider to drop in your rating and review. And don't forget to subscribe to catch all the future episodes. Now for the show. Trina White, how lovely to have you on my podcast. You are the co-founder and principal of Page Two, and uh, I would consider you a, a, a wonderful friend for having accompanied me in the publication of my first book. Trina, in your own words, how would you like to describe who you are? Thanks so much, Minter. I'm glad to be here. Um, I would say, yes, I'm the co-founder of a book publishing company called Page Two, and we specialize in publishing experts. Um, we're, we're based in Canada, but we publish people from all over the world, um, like you, happily. And uh, Michael Bungay Stanier, who's the author of a couple of books called The Coaching Habit and The Advice Trap that we published, um, which are very well known. Uh, a, a wonderful entrepreneur named Eric Sue, who's the founder of a, an advertising agency in LA called Single Grain and a very big podcaster. So people like that who really have um, a message and a following and want to spread it through a book. Um, and, and I would say I'm also a mother of two little boys who are five and seven. And I, I think that's significant because I had my first son at the same time that we launched page two, basically. Mm, so two my babies. boys and my business have grown up uh, side by side for me. So tell us the, so seven years ago, page two is born. Of course, I, I'm, I'm just imagining right now visions of you pregnant and, and trying to deal with all that and the paperwork and the stress and all that. But what was the incentive for birthing page two? Yeah, you know, it's a couple of things. So about a year into running page two, I realized, oh, I always wanted to be an entrepreneur. I just hadn't really identified that. So I think it was it, it was an instinct that had always been in me to create something and to run my own business. Um, but what made this happen at that specific time is that I had met the right business partner. Um, so my co-founder, Jesse Finkelstein, and I were working at a, an independent publishing company, which at the time was Canada's largest independent publisher. And um, we were colleagues for about a year and put into quite senior positions within that company. And then the company entered creditor protection. So we then were responsible for selling off the assets, basically, and overseeing, you know, the, the sale of that company. 
which left us in a position of, um, and everybody who worked there were laid off. And so basically there I was eight months pregnant, no job to come back to after maternity leave thinking, you know, what on earth am I going to do next? And we just started to talk about creating something together. And so it was just this confluence of circumstances that Mm. made it, I I just felt like, why not? What do I have to lose? Um, And I was excited by it. They do say that necessity is the mother of invention. So being a a mother-to-be, mother of invention, I kind of just see something happening in that too. And so, so, um, I mean, we're in a business that's mutated a lot. And so my, the story in my head before you told me was, um, why on earth get into a book business? Because it's not an easy business to get into. So what you just described, of course, is, is also very congruent with that particular s- statement. In terms of positioning yourself, though, you, I, I feel that you were more of a self-publisher helper, kind of hybrid or self-publisher. And talk us through how you have positioned yourself, what you did at the beginning, and where you are now. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, that's exactly it. So um, bankruptcies are not uncommon in traditional publishing. It is a very t- tumultuous, um, it's you know historically been quite a volatile industry with very low margins. So we set out to create a different kind of publishing company. And um, we wanted to create a model that we felt was more author centric, that really put the author at the heart of every major publishing decision that would go into the book. Um, And, and so in that way, combine the best of self publishing with traditional publishing. So it was we didn't want to throw out everything we learned from our years in traditional publishing. We wanted to bring that to entrepreneurial people who might otherwise choose to self-publish. Um, and so the, the, the common term for this kind of company is hybrid publisher. We've never quite loved that term because um, there's, there's just this wild and woolly landscape of hybrid, hybrid publishers and um, with quite varying degrees of professionalism. Um, so the, the term that we've been using more recently is professional publishing. You know, we are the publisher for professionals who want to have a very professionally created pr- book that allows them to um, publish it in a way that's aligned with their businesses and to have creative control over the, the work. Um, but in the early days, we were more of a publishing services company. So providing individual services to authors. Now we do look more like a publisher in that we have global distribution into you know, the same stores that the multinational publishers are selling into. Um, and uh, we have a team of 16 people that really see the book through from beginning to end. And in the way that a traditional publisher would but in a very different relationship with the author and a very different financial relationship too. Mm. I mean, as an author and having worked with you, I, I certainly appreciated the way you worked and, and the, in the financial model, though it was a pay to play kind of 
situation as opposed to sit back and let the publisher do everything kind of thing. A couple of thoughts come through my mind. The first is the way it seems to me as an author now is that essentially the sales rely on you as an author, that you're basically designed, you have to do all the writing, all the hard editing and all that kind of fun stuff. And then you, you get to do all the selling. And, and I mean, of course, if, you know, were I to be a somewhat famous person, another gig, but that's not my, my, my fortune. So now as an author, the interesting thing that I'm thinking about on the other side is, well, maybe entrepreneurial, but maybe involved, but do they, do they know how to be business people? Because when you, when you as a publisher make a decision on the front cover, it's a highly subjective decision at some level. And the author's opinion is great, but you know, I may not be an aesthetic. I may not be a great uh you know, I may be colorblind for all know, for all I know. And and so I was just wondering about that tension because you know, involving them, but yeah, sometimes they're not quite as good as they may be or need to be. Yeah, it's that's such a good question. And it, it is a, a tension that we navigate, you know, every day. The, the way I think about how we work is that we're serving we, we are a service-driven company in that our authors hire us to produce their work and we collaborate with them on the project. So they're our client and our job is to make them happy and feel great about the, the experience and the ultimate product. And we're also serving the reader, right? And that's the tension you're pointing to. Yeah. Um, so what happens when those two are in conflict where maybe the author wants something that might please them, but may not benefit the reader. We, we have a conversation with our authors about it. You know, we're very commercially focused. So um, our, you know, we're trying to help the author reach as many people as we can. And, and I just find the people who choose to work with us tend to, also to be, you know, they, for the most part, part, um, they're publishing the book to elevate their business and their brand. And so their interest is in creating something that's going to serve the market and serve their audience as well. So it doesn't actually come to pass that often that there is a tension, you we can usually explain our rationale for, you know, why, their face shouldn't be on the cover of the book, for instance, which is a, a not unusual conversation to have. Um, and uh, then, and they get it, especially if we can back it up with, you know, experience and feedback from our salespeople and, and that kind of thing. It, it strikes me in that conversation, I, I, you know, going back to the self-publishing sort of existence, and then you've got the traditional publisher existence, mm-hmm. The, the alignment of incentives is is a critical one. And, you know, if it's a pay pay for service, I'm the client, well, my way or the highway, you know, you, you jump six and a half feet because I told you to jump that way, you know, client relationship, whatever. But it, how do you align the, the incentives? Because, I mean, obviously you want their success, mm-hmm. but is there a another mode of alignment when it comes to those incentives that you were talking about the different financial models where 
my success is also your success. How, how do you, how do you gauge that? Mm -hmm. And by the way, you probably need to answer what is success. Yeah, well, that's it. And the way we define success actually depends, it, it changes from project to project because our, are we are successful when we have helped an author reach their own personal goals for a book. And so sometimes we, we begin work with an author and they say, I, um, I really want a hundred Amazon reviews in the first month. And that's important to me. And I'll know I've done a great job with this book if I get that, or I really want to sell a hundred thousand copies of this within two years or, um, or sometimes it's not even about that kind of sales or commercial recognition. It's, I just need, um, I had an, spoke with an, one of our authors recently who said, you know what, my entire book was worth it because um, uh, this one person bought it in an airport store and hired me to do a $75,000 consulting project for them. So that was successful for her because it wasn't actually about the book's success specifically. She was looking, she was thinking more holistically about the impact the book would have on her business, which is very common for our authors as well. So mm-hmm. we, we take all of that into account when we enter into a project, you know, how are they building this book into the company? What are their expectations for it? Can we meet those expectations um, and make sure that we're aligned right from the very beginning before we even start to work together. That makes total sense. You know, I suppose the the word that I like to use is I, I think of my book as a platform. Mm-hmm. And and therefore that little uh, $75,000 consultancy would be a, a perfect example of a, of a win. So we, it's an industry as I see it. And I'd love for you to correct me because, you know, I just, I'm, I'm, you know, from my little angle that, that approximately 1 million books are published every year, something like that. That's the number that I have. Obviously, within that, there's all sorts of different genre. And I suppose they're probably adding in every Tom, Dick and Harry self-published, you know, 20 page book, whatever that's, that's out there. Because, um, you know, what's a book at some level? How do you gauge success? Because I don't know if I, you have any statistics, but it doesn't seem to me that book buying is going up, albeit we have a pandemic. But I mean, I, I know about my kids. I don't know what your kids are going to be seven and five today, but are they going to be voracious readers reading 60 books a year like I was brought up to do? I mean, I used to read actually one book a day mm-hmm. when I was at university. Uh, that doesn't seem like that's today the situation. What do you see and how do you see the book market evolving? Yeah, this is a, this is such a fun question because so first of all, um, I I do believe that um, the kids of today, including mine, will be voracious readers. and and even in this crazy, tumultuous COVID year, book sales in the United States are up over last year. So people are still buying books. They are still reading. Um, They may be reading in different ways, though. So people are, um, you you know, this year, and I would say the, the rate of acceleration of digital reading and buying of books has, um, it's just accelerated dramatically. 
And we were already on a trajectory where ebooks and audiobooks in particular were rising. And this year has, it has accelerated that. So I just think the kids of today might read their books on their iPhones um, instead of going to their local independent bookstore to pick up a printed book, right? With a cup it's, of coffee. They're still reading, um, but they're reading differently. And that, that doesn't make me nervous at all. We just need to keep adapting to, to stay on top of how people are finding and consuming their books. Surely we have seen books get smaller. I mean, mm-hmm. I, very few books do I see in a bookstore or you know, generally 700 pages. Those type of books seem very rare. And so they're, let's say that the attention spans coming down. I suppose that's a reality or, or is that also still sticking around? Yeah, that is very much one of the things that I'm noticing that book lengths are coming down um, and sometimes quite dramatically. So one of our best-selling books is a tiny little, you know, almost a hundred page book. Well, yeah, it's very small. It's, it's um, less than 20,000 words, which if you, if you know books is about a third or a quarter of the size of a typical business book. Um, This is a little book called exactly what to say by a sales trainer named Phil Jones And it's now sold about three quarters of a million copies. It's so small. And I think that's part of its success. It's something you can read in an hour and a half, two hours. It's, you know, very concrete, practical advice that you can implement right away. And I think there, there is a huge demand for that in a book, you know, people's attention spans are divided, you know, among many different kinds of media now and you know the internet and all kinds of things um they they and and in this year in the in covid especially people are you know are showing in surveys that they're reading as many books but the volume is they're buying as many books but the volume is lower because they're more distracted Mm. um and so i think yeah short books are here to stay and it's it's becoming quite common to see very short books. Readers don't want a lot of padding. The the thing is that traditional publishers haven't quite caught up to that. So this is something that we that we are starting to really specialize in is very short text-based books, um, nonfiction books that are highly designed, where the text is very highly designed with pull quotes and sidebars, so that they're very accessible and easy to get into, even if you're not a reader's reader who might sit down with a 300 page book and want to read in a very linear way from start to finish. So the, the thing is that I think traditional publishers still have this expectation that a book will have a certain width of spine so that it, it stands out on the shelf. Um, but that's just not how people are buying their books for the most part these days. You know, They're buying them because they've heard of it They've had a recommendation in some way. They're searching for it. Um, so those kinds of traditional conventions don't matter as much anymore mm-hmm. from my perspective. Well, there, there are a few thoughts. One is the dim dematerialization 
or the digital versions make the spine kind of useless uh, from an Amazon perspective. A second thought that curses through my mind is the digital component, because unlike the books that we would sell in the past, where uh, there's like that famous Ogilvy state, which my marketing works, 50% of my marketing works, I just don't know which 50%. (laughs) And so when you sold a book, you sold a book, but you have no idea if the individual read half a page or the full thing. Whereas with audio and uh, Kindle or, you know, uh, eBooks, you can see progress. And so that data, I'm assuming that's something that you're bringing into the evaluation. Although you can't know that that's how paper book readers are, but it does give you an indication of what the digital consumption desires are. Yes and no. I mean, the trouble with that is that the big, you know, tech corporations own that data, right? So Amazon owns all of the data that it's, of course, it's accumulating just massive amounts of data about how people are reading and consuming audiobooks and ebooks. They don't share that with publishers. So um, this is one of the challenges with ebooks specifically is that for the most part, they're device bound, right? You're, and, and the company that provides access to that device owns the data. So yeah, that, that is one of the challenges of, of book publishing today, which is why, you know, more publishers are trying to do direct sales so they can understand who, who the readers for different books actually are. And there, there isn't that disintermediation that there has been historically. Well, surely there's also the uh, bigger margin in, yeah. in, yeah. in that. And there's no, uh, there's no doubt that that intermediation, that's very frustrating what you say, because I mean, I go bonkers about this particular thing, which is I, I read, I read paper, audio and Kindle. I'm like you. I'm at least I, I feel like I'm doing also because I have different ways I want to consume at different times. And in Kindle, one of the things I love outside of being able to push on a word and say, Hmm, that's what that word means. I can identify when there's a typo. And especially in the self-public, you know, I I assume anyway, I mean, although with my experience, I know that mistakes happen in the publisher's world. But when I see a typo in a friend's book, I I, I mark it. So I send typo, sort of missing word or typo in the Kindle. And then I ask my friends, hey, listen, did you see, have you gotten any feedback from that? No. And, and that's in the self-publishing world. So that's where they, you know, could just quickly go back in and re-edit and upload the KDP and so on and push it out. And I find it just so disarming that that there's that sort of treasure trove of, of, of relevant information for us, whether it's the publisher or the author, that's just not handed back out. Yeah. Well, we, we have seen authors get notifications from um Kindle uh, that there's a typo in their book so that data does sometimes get released but that's that's you know the tiniest fraction of the kind of data that Amazon would be accumulating Mm -hmm. Um, and yeah and and you know sometimes they flag things that really don't even need to be correcting so there's sometimes also almost an overstepping of lines (sighs) between the distributor is Amazon and publisher. Um, so yeah, it's it's always interesting with Amazon. 
All right. So uh, going back to your entrepreneurial story, Trina, you named your company Page Two. Um, what happened with Page One? <laughs> well, th- yeah, the name comes from a few different things. Um, it was, you know, partly a play on the idea that we were reinventing how publishing could happen and creating a new model for book publishing. So kind of a play on the idea of publishing 2.0, if you will. Um, And then, of course, there is that sense that if you're on the second page, you're you're hooked and you're moving forward and you have momentum in, in the story. Um, and then, then it also speaks to the partnership between Jesse and me, which is just so foundational to everything, you know, we've built together. We created the vision for the company together. We built the team together. We've run the company in a fairly, um, or with a fairly organic division of leadership between us. Um, so that the name speaks to that as well. So you are now seven years into it um, and and you've evolved to be the professional publisher. What I understood in our one of our conversations was that you you've also you're becoming more picky. Uh, you don't want a, every uh, assignment. you obviously are trying to ensure their success and your success. How many books are you how do you look at that model? because obviously there's a there's an equation that says more books published, more incoming revenues. Uh, where are you with that? And, and do you see growth in the future? Or, or what, how do you want to mold the future, sculpt, I should say, the, the future mm-hmm. of page two? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So right from the beginning, we identified that we wanted to work with a very specific type of author. And we've held steady to that it's the entrepreneurial entrepreneurial authors who are building a book into their business who are true experts and authorities in their field um, often in the areas of business and leadership but also relationships parenting and self-help um and and one, and one, and one history book <laughs> and one history book I'm yeah just exactly just but you you are you are you know you encapsulate those qualities you are that entrepreneurial author with a platform and uh, and those other things that we're looking for so right from the beginning we identified that we wanted to um, really own and build this niche and that that would be our area of focus and we have held steady to that and where where we're going now we've basically gone from being a company of two my partner and me to um, a team of 16 people. And we're publishing about 45 to 50 new books a year. And um, the the type of author we're working with, I would say their profiles are larger than ever now. Um, You know, they're true global thought leaders in many cases, um, rather than people who are just starting out building their platform on their and their credibility on their subject. So our vision is really to um, keep trying to serve that, you know, leading expert um, in a deeper way. So we don't actually want to hire many more people. We don't want to publish many more books. We don't want to just scale and scale. We've gone through the most, uh, you know, the intensive scaling period that, that 
or I think <laughs> at this point, that's how we see it. And um, our vision now is just to be able to offer more support and deeper support. So as an example, um, we're just now building out our own internal audiobook division. And um, one of the things we're doing is that our editors are learning how to think about the audiobook as they're working on the, the material for the print edition and the ebook edition. And they're, they're looking at how to adapt that material to make the most effective audiobook that they can, that we can. And we're getting creative with what the audiobook content and form might look like. Um, so we wanted to bring it in house so that we could give audiobook production the same creative attention mm. that we would the other formats. Um, and, it, you know, we're currently recording a couple of audiobooks where the book has been entirely rescripted for audiobook because it wouldn't have read, it wouldn't have quite worked as an audiobook if it had just been a verbatim recording. Um, so that that kind of thing, really digging in more deeply to serve our authors better and ultimately their readers. Well, for having done the reading of two of my books with Audible, um, it, it, I can definitely feel how a written book is different from a spoken book. Mm -hmm. and, and, and yet I was thinking I had to stick to the script because Audible is rather severe in the way that they look at that. Is that something that you're confronted with or, or, or by doing your own version, you're sort of in a, uh, an independent mode and then you just get listed on Amazon as an audiobook? Yeah, it's, it's, um, it's not a concern. And in fact, I would say it's, um, you know, we're thinking of it as a marketing hook as well, that there's, it is possible that the same people who bought the print edition of these books, for instance, might be interested in, in listening to a totally reconfigured audiobook that will have, mm. you know, different voices and interviews and things that they wouldn't have access through the print book. Mm. Um, so that's how we're thinking about it. And now I should say too, that what I don't believe in is adding bells and whistles and, you know, getting wildly creative just for the sake of it. It has to really make sense for the content. And, you know, that's, that's always our starting place. Um, that was something that we saw a lot of when eBooks came to be, you know, over, I guess about 15 years ago now, um, a lot of publishers were experimenting with multimedia eBooks and, readers just found it distracting, really. Um, mm -hmm. You know, you don't need to add sounds and videos and things just for the sake of it. Um, it was almost like this era of exploration and experimentation. But it turns out that a lot of readers just really want to consume the content um, and, mm -hmm. uh, you know, remain focused on the, on the core ideas of the book without those kinds of distractions. At the very same time, Trina, you have... Uh, podcasting and a mm -hmm. sophistication in the production values of podcasts where in an audio only format, they're going to think about what's in your ear and they're going to, you know, do things to shake it up and, mm -hmm. and add those elements so that as a listener, you, you get emotionally uh, almost into it. 
because just the story alone is interesting. But when you do add the theatrics that are available to you in the ear, because it's very intimate, uh, there's some remarkable podcasts. And that, for me, feels mm-hmm. like a whole nother avenue, because you're absolutely right. It's a different media mm-hmm. medium. And, and so as such, you know, change it around to make sure that the story is spoken comfortably and right. you can do these interviews and you could you could make it much more scenerized for the audio consumption yeah that's that's exactly right it's it's recognizing the potential of the medium and making the most of it in a very thoughtful way that stays true to the core content and ideas of the book mm-hmm. and um so i think and you know audiobooks have have just dramatically, um, sales of audiobooks have dramatically increased this year. And so I think this is going to be something that's increasingly important over the next several years is thinking very carefully and strategically about the audiobook format. So when you uh, talked about earlier, the growth in the digital versions, what, what are we, do you have a, in the nonfiction business kind of space, I guess, to be more precise, do you have any ideas about the, the breakdown of how many, what is the percentage in eBooks and audio versus the old fashioned, you know, publish it? You, you yeah. Know. Yeah, I do. So um, right now in um, the, the UK and North America, at least, um, audiobooks account for about 5% of the market, ebooks about 20%, and print is the rest. So print still really dominates. Um, but it gets interesting because that that's not the case for every single book. You know, we do have authors whose audiobooks have sold almost as many copies as their print book, for instance. Um, and, and so it's not always predictable, but that's the general state of the market. And then this year, um, audiobooks gained about t- uh, 20%, you know, over last year. So mm-hmm. there's been this big jump this year, specifically mm-hmm. as people are at home, you know, listening while they're washing dishes or, you know, working remotely or whatever it is that they're doing. Well, that, that's the competition with the podcast as well, because yeah. that's the benefit. You can kind of multitask, listen in, in and out, kind of listen, which, you know, sounds disrespectful to some authors, I'm thinking. So um <laughs> wanted to talk a little bit last piece of this about as an author. So there's there's this beautiful expression that says, and, and presumably you surf on that, which is there's a book inside of everybody. Uh, there's a there's a film inside of everybody, and uh, and I certainly subscribe to that somehow. Uh, the book that I did with you was my first book, and um, and then I'm thinking in the nonfiction area as coming back to another point I made, which is it ultimately ends up being the author pushing his or her mm-hmm. book, mm-hmm. and and so that that's that work. What I've determined is there are so many avenues and it's a black hole in terms of resources that you can expend getting the word out, pushing things out, using social media, using a publicist, getting the SEO, getting the Goodreads going, getting Amazon reviews. Oh my gosh. 
it's a task. It's a Herculean task mm -hmm. when you look at all the options. So, and this is what this is kind of a trick question. What's the short answer to getting a success? You know, what 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 have you seen have been some of the key levers to pull when trying to get through success outside of being, you know, Seth Godin, you're, you know. Yeah. Well, it's first that's an interesting idea that there's a book in everyone. I don't know that I agree with that. Um I think I just know too much how hard that and Herculean the effort of publishing and promoting a book is um, for an author. And I think it it makes sense to do it if you have a burning need to do it. You have to be so committed over the very long term, you know, years of writing the book, producing the book, promoting the book. So um yeah, I I would I mean I wouldn't want to talk anyone out of <laughs> writing a book and publishing a book, but there's that. Um, and you're right that the onus is largely on the author to market the book, and that is the case no matter how they publish the book, um, whether they're self-publishing it, whether they're working with a, a traditional publisher, um, unless you're the you know Seth Godin on the publisher's list, you know, a truly A-list author. Um, many, many traditionally published authors have to hire their own publicists and, you know, they're building their own websites just like everybody else and doing all of the things that go into promoting the book. So, so yes, you have to really want to do it um, and have really solid reasons for, for doing it. What are the levers that really work? Honestly, Minter, I am of the firm belief that there is no, there, there isn't really a magic solution or a secret sauce or, or formula that somebody could follow to sell and market a book effectively. I think it comes down to two big things. And one is um, first writing a book that has tremendous value for the audience and that the audience is going to recommend to their friends, their colleagues, their family, that they're going to want to buy for people. So it's, it's not a sexy idea, but the truth of it is that book marketing truly does start with coming up with the right concept that fills a gap in the market and that is excellent, uh, excellently executed. And combining that with um, creating a community or tapping into a community of interest around the book. So what I mean by that is um, one of the biggest mistakes that I see authors make is they start to think about their book marketing, you know, four months before launch. Really, the time to think about how you're going to market the book is years before the book launch. It's, it's the it's the community that you're building through your podcast, um, through your email newsletters, through your speaking, through workshops, training, you know, networking, all of those social media, all of those things are what leads to a successful book launch. And um, mm. it just takes tremendous effort to, to build that out over years. You know, that's what mm. an author platform is. It's that, it's that, audience that you've built that is excited and engaged by your ideas and then will support the book when it launches. Mm. 
So I just don't feel there are, there aren't really shortcuts, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. It's, it's still that organic audience, you know, not just organic, but, you know, concerted effort that goes into developing the audience in advance. That really is the big differentiator. And I mean, at the end of the day, you know, on top of that, we're, we're speaking about a book that is long form content. Mm-hmm. It's not like your snippy, snappy little blog post or, you know, a 30 second video clip. It's mm-hmm. it there, there. I feel like the journey that we were on, Trina, and I have to uh, just uh, publicly laud the the effort that you put into the Lost Ring Home. I still feel excessively proud of that book in terms mm-hmm. of the final product, what it did, and how it went. And 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 you you really accompanied me. And so there was this this the project is lifelike in terms of dimension, and and just like there's this whole platform and life that you create and the network that you have. A book is is a part of that, and and it's just not something for snack food. I mean, sure, you can do a hundred page pamphlet. Let's call it in the old days, we might have called that a long form essay. Uh, yet, do I think it? This is the pleasure of it. And like you say, if you don't like writing, don't do it <laughs> because <laughs> yeah, because if you're you know you just might end up selling one and a half books, you know, to your daughter who won't read it and your, and your mother who will, because she's your mom. Uh, But that, that may be the end result of it. So you better enjoy the process. You better enjoy the process. And I mean, I think with the last ring home, I saw you, you know, that, that, that could have been quite a challenging book in that um, it's a family story and the, platform that you had built was around you know branding and marketing and and the book didn't inter entirely intersect with that so there there's a publishing challenge right from the from the get-go but what I saw you do you were so smart about how you marketed it because you um, tapped into your own alumni networks you um, built bridges with veterans organizations. You built it into the documentary um, show, the companion documentary showings. You know, you really, you created this amazing network that did end up supporting the book. And I think that that's really, that's what creates success with a book. You know, And the, and the last part of it that sort of, I've rewritten the script, which is that, I like to call myself a storyteller. Mm-hmm. So I can tell stories of business, but this is, let's say, pure storytelling. And on top of that, I've exercised that in several media. And the interesting thing for me, I've now done eight different media of the same story. And it's not the same story because the media impacts the, the way you tell it. Anyway, Trina, um, just a delight. So... Uh, authors who are interested in coming to you, how can they find you? The books that you sell, do you have your own e-commerce? What can people do? And if someone wants to get in touch with you and or anybody at the team, what's the best way? Yeah, I would say going to our website is a good first step. Um, Page2.com, two is spelled out. Um, We are also as a company on Instagram, Facebook, and LinkedIn. And People can find me on LinkedIn under Trina White. 
and I would be happy to connect. Super. Trina, it's a pleasure. You are very missionary in the way you, you have led this, uh, the way you accompany people. Amongst the authors that I know, you have a tremendous reputation. And I can't thank you enough for the work you did for me. Thanks for coming on my show. Um, happy holidays. Uh, and may 2021 be a different kind of year. Thank you so much, Minter. Thanks for having listened to this episode of the Minter Dialogue Show. You'll find all the show notes and other blog posts on MinterDial.com. And if you enjoyed the show, please head over to Apple Podcasts to give a rating and review. And to finish, here's a song I wrote with Stephanie Singer, A Convinced Man.
I'm Bruce Martin, host of Pit Pass Indy. Each week, I go behind the scenes of the NTT IndyCar Series and introduce our listeners to the biggest stars of IndyCar, which features the Indianapolis 500 as its cornerstone event. The men and women that compete in IndyCar may be the bravest athletes in all of sport as danger lurks around every corner. They are able to look danger in the eye without flinching. That is why the NTT IndyCar Series features the best racing on the planet. Join me every week as we talk to the stars of IndyCar, including the legends of the Indianapolis 500 on Pit Pass Indy from Evergreen Podcast. 